Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and today I want to share with you about the power of partnership. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about this, and partnership is different than just giving. I'll be making some of these points and explaining it more. But instead of just impulse giving, emotional giving, you can give in a deliberate, planned way to where you literally become a partaker of the anointing that is on another person or a ministry, a church. Uh, You can receive the benefits, the rewards that go to them. Plus, financially, it makes a huge difference in your life when you give on a deliberate, systematic, consistent basis. And so we're going to be talking about some of these things and bringing out some truths that I have come to... uh, believe and learn through the Word of God. I certainly didn't just intuitively know these things. I had to learn them through the Word of God, and it's my opinion that most people that I encounter also uh, don't just automatically know these things, that they have to be learned, they have to be acquired through the Word of God. And it'll make a difference in the way you view finances, and specifically the way you view a systematic, deliberate, consistent type of giving. And uh, I believe that for you to operate in the fullness and the best of what God has for you, that there needs to be partnership, deliberate, planned giving, not just, you know, occasional giving as you feel led at the moment. No doubt there are times that God leads us in specific ways, and this is not the only way to give. But I believe that partnership is a principle taught in the Word of God, and we're going to be bringing a lot of scriptures out on this. Let me first of all just say that the reason God has given us the ability to prosper and to produce finances is not just to meet our needs, but rather it's so that we can use those finances to establish and promote God's kingdom. Now that on the surface uh, looks like it's contrary to what most people really believe. Now, in a religious setting, somebody might agree with that and say, oh, yes, well, I believe that I'm supposed to use my finances. But as far as practical things go on a day-to-day basis, most people literally look at their needs and they look at their job and all of their income as providing their needs, paying their bills, their mortgage, their car payment, their food expense, their utilities, their clothing, their desires, their wants. They take care of themselves first And then they give if there's something left over. As a matter of fact, most of the Christians that I come in contact with and when I talk about giving, there are some people that you even mention giving, finances, and they immediately are offended. I get a tremendous amount of flack over this. Matter of fact, there are entire segments of the body of Christ that teach against any type of prosperity. They... uh, believe that it is all carnal, it's manipulative, that ministers only say those kind of things for selfish motivations, and there is a tremendous prejudice against prosperity. And uh, they teach, you know, they call people health, wealth preachers and criticize them and actually preach that poverty is, is a decent thing. And yet it's hypocritical because the very people that preach that Uh, themselves all want money to pay their bills and to make their ministry and their church function. And so there are some people who really rebel at that. As a matter of fact, I've ministered over in England 
Uh, I have offices in England since 1990, and I've spent a lot of time ministering over there. And uh, even though there is prejudice and uh, criticism and a lot of uh, reaction against prosperity in the United States, I've encountered a hundred times more resistance in the U.K. There is just somehow or another a belief that if you are doing what God wants you to do, it should automatically work and that a minister should never mention finances. It ought to be just like... um, you know, it works like a charm. People will come up with these statements. If Where God guides, he provides. And I certainly believe that uh, it's true that the Lord always makes provision for what he calls you to do. But it's also a truth in the Word of God that's very well established. And I'm going to be going through a lot of these scriptures that God uses people to fund his work. And there are scriptural examples. Paul talked about how that, you know, he had to support himself and had to do certain things because people wouldn't give to him and wouldn't support him. And he talked about being in want and in need. That wasn't God's will for him. The Bible says in 3 John verse uh, chapter 1, verse 2, that God wishes above all things that we prosper and be in health even as our soul prospers. And there's many scriptures that you can use to talk about how God wants to supply our needs on an individual basis as well as a ministry. But it's dependent a lot upon people. And some people just refuse to admit this, and they believe that uh, you should never talk about money or anything else. But the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Jesus spent more time talking about money and stewardship over money than he did any other area. I mean, bar none, talking about eternity, heaven and hell issues, all of these things. The Lord talked about money, not because money is the most important, but because it is the least important. It's the first step in believing God. It's the least area of trusting God. If you can't do that which is least, you certainly cannot do that which is greatest. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus taught about this parable about a steward, about the unjust steward and how he had stolen from his master And right after he got through with that parable, he went on to say in verse 10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. We will take that passage of Scripture and we'll make all kinds of applications. And, you know, I tell my Bible college students that if you want a worldwide ministry, you don't start at that level. You have to start out cleaning the toilets, working in children's church, ushering, being faithful and ministering however you can find. And as you're faithful and least, then God will promote you. And that's a true principle, and it applies in many different areas. It's the same thing in a business. A person doesn't come on and become the CEO at the beginning. He has to work his way up. If you've never been a stock clerk, if you've never done this, you just don't automatically step in there. You have to earn that position. And so this is a principle that works in many different areas. But in the context here, if you study this out, he is talking about that which is least is money. And if you aren't faithful With your money, if you don't trust God in your finances, you will not be promoted in other areas. This is exactly what he's talking about. And I'm not going to take the time here, but if you went back and studied Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 9, you'd find that's exactly what he's talking about. So again, in verse 10, he says, He that is faithful in that which is least 
is faithful also in much, and he that is unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, this is just old English for money, who shall commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is just old English for money. So he's talking here about money. A person who says, oh, I'm trusting God for my health and I'm believing for a healing of cancer. But you know what? They can't trust God with their finances. They can't trust the promises that if you give, it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Shall man give into your bosom? Luke 6, 38. See, if you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greatest. The reason I'm bringing this out is to say that some people think you shouldn't be preaching on these things. Let's deal with the true uh, truths of the gospel, the great truths of the word of God. Money and stewardship over money is one of the great truths of the word of God. And according to this teaching, Jesus is saying, if you can't do that, which is least, if you can't trust God with your finances, what makes you think you can do these other things? So I'm bringing this point out to say that this is not superfluous. This is not just, you know, something that we should teach to the really mature saints. This is baby stuff, trusting God with your finances. And, you know, if I couldn't jump five feet, then you would be smart to bet that I couldn't jump ten feet. If you can't do that which is least, you can't do that which is greatest. But I meet people all of the time who are saying, well, I can't. You know, I just don't have enough money to give. I can't give. I need all of this. And I know that God says he'd multiply it back, but I've got the first of all. I just can't do this. They may not say it in these words, but what they're saying is I can't really trust God in this area. But then they're going to trust God that the salvation of their soul, they're going to trust God in heaven and hell issues, that they are going to heaven and not to hell. You know, the same God who promised that he would forgive your sins if you would believe and receive. That's the same God who promised that he would also multiply your money. When you give, it would come back unto you, and you would be better off with less than you were with more. That's the same God that made all of those promises. And if you can't trust the promise concerning that which is least money, Many people are fooling themselves that they are really trusting God for their eternal salvation or for their physical healing or for the restoration of their marriage or whatever. I have found in teaching on this that many people, when they begin to start trusting God, it not only releases financial prosperity into their life, which is true, but it also increases them spiritually. Their faith begins to grow. When you see God prove himself faithful in that which is least, it increases your faith, it strengthens it, so that you're able to believe for greater things. And many people are just trying to bypass this and go on and receive from God and get their miracles, but they aren't trusting God in their finances. This is not extra. This is not just, you know, like a... Uh, master's course, an extra degree. This is foundational, entry-level stuff. You must trust God with your finances. And so God spent a lot of time, the Lord Jesus spent a tremendous amount of time in his ministry talking about finances. And the reason that God 
gives us money is so that we can use it for the kingdom. Now, this is a radical concept, and it's something that it's going to take the Holy Spirit to enlighten you on this because this is so far removed from where the average person is that it's just like it's off the page. This isn't even on the radar screen of the average person, not even the average Christian. The average Christian really believes that the reason we work, the reason we do everything we do, is to pay our bills and to be a good steward and to do all of these things. And then whatever is left over, we will tip God. That is an attitude that is exactly against what God's Word teaches. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18 Uh, The Lord is talking to the people through Moses about them entering into the promised land. And he says, you are going to have houses. You're going to go in and occupy houses that other people have built. You're going to occupy vineyards that other people have planted and taken care of. You are going to have a prosperity and a blessing on you that you have never experienced before. But he says, remember, remember that it's not by your might that you did this. It's because of my covenant with you. And then he said this, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18. He says, But thou shalt remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that giveth thee power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. Notice this verse says God gives you power to get wealth. He doesn't give you wealth directly. He gives you power, an ability, an anointing to get wealth. And you have to cooperate. You have to believe. You have to go out and set your hand unto something. You have to do certain things. If it was like in the area of a farmer, you have to plant the seed. But God is the one who blesses it. If a person will believe, they will receive a greater crop than their unbelieving neighbor that doesn't believe. They will receive greater benefit and greater bounty. And it's God who gives us this anointing, this power to get wealth. And notice it says that he does this so that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. The purpose of our prosperity is to establish the covenant. Here's a New Testament scripture that says the same thing. In Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 28. It says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, and what for what purpose? It goes on to say, That he may have to give to him that needeth. The purpose of you working is not so that you can supply your needs, but rather it is so that you can give to other people. Give to him that needs. Now, I know, again, that this is just so hard for some people to grasp. It takes a supernatural enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. But I'm praying right now that the Holy Spirit is dealing with you and revealing this truth to you. This will radically change your entire life. I mean, it will transform you if you can get this truth. The reason you work isn't to supply your need, but rather it's so that you can be a blessing to other people. And I know that some of you right now are thinking, oh, man, if I did that, if I started thinking more about the kingdom than I did about myself and taking care of my need, who would take care of me? Well, I'm telling you that the scripture, there is a divine flow, a supernatural miracle that takes place when you begin to start using your finances first and foremost For the kingdom of God, a supernatural miracle takes place and God starts taking care of your needs. 
you will live in a greater degree of prosperity. The blessings of God will come upon you and overtake you if you put first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's exactly the terminology and the point that's being made in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, where the Lord says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The things that he's talking about are what you shall eat, where you shall sleep, what you're clothed with, etc. In other words, talking about your needs, your financial, physical needs. The Lord is saying that if you would use your money first and foremost to establish the kingdom of God, then there is a divine flow, a supernatural miracle that takes place to where God begins to start taking care of you. And God is not El Chipo. He is El Shaddai. God is opulent. God is extravagant. Now, this, again, violates the religious teaching, the theology of many people. But if you look in the Word of God, it's there. In the very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, God created gold and stuff. And it says in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2, it talks about that the gold of this land was good. Man wouldn't have known gold from dirt. It was God that said, this is good, this is good. God told them gold is good. God put value on gold. The Lord paves his streets with gold in heaven. When the Lord provided the wine at the feast in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2, it was after the man had already used up and drunk all of the wine that they had, and the Lord made like a 160-something gallons of wine. And it wasn't bad wine. It was the best wine. He provided more than enough. When he multiplied the five loaves and the two fish of this little boy in Mark chapter 6, you'll find out that he supplied so much that he fed a multitude of 5,000 men, probably at least 15,000 people, counting women and children. He multiplied that five loaves and two fish, fed all of these people, gave them seconds, thirds. They ate as much as they wanted, and there was more left over than there was when he began. There was 12 baskets full left over. He didn't supply just barely enough to get by. He, there was more left over. There was more leftovers than there was to originally start this process. God is a God of abundance. God doesn't just want us to barely get by. And so when you start putting first the kingdom of God, God will supernaturally take care of you. God will multiply things in your life and you will be taken care of better by God than you would ever take care of yourself. As a matter of fact, I had a friend of mine one time who was blessing me and giving some things to me, and it was just more than what I felt I deserved. This guy actually bought cars for me, and he bought good cars, cars that were better and nicer than I would have ever have bought for myself. And I was saying something that was to the effect of, I don't deserve this. This is, this is better. You know, I'm embarrassed by this. Somebody's going to think that, man, this preacher is living too high of a lifestyle. That's a constant criticism against ministers. And even though it was a gift and I wasn't paying it, I wasn't using my money. I wasn't taking any money from people to do this. It was a gift to me. I was saying, you know, I'm embarrassed by this. And this guy looked me in the face and he says, until you get to a place to where you're embarrassed 
at your level of prosperity, you haven't tapped into God's ability. Now, that may take some meditation thinking about that before you agree or understand what I'm saying. But, you know, I've come to realize that that's true. God will treat me better than I would treat myself. God has blessed me tremendously. And this is the way that God is. God wants to bless you. But instead of you working and doing all of these things to supply your need, and then if there's something left over, you will give it to God. I'll be glad to give to God if I just had anything left over. That's not what the scripture says. It says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all of these other things will be added unto you. If you would honor the Lord with the first fruits of your increase, then there is a supernatural divine flow that begins in your life that would cause you to prosper greater than you could ever prosper any other way. Here's another scripture that says that same thing, makes this same point. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, And in verse 8, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Notice here it says that the reason he makes this grace abound towards you is so that you can abound to every good work. Prosperity is not defined by how many houses, cars you have, the, the uh, amount of money it took to get those things, your bank account, your savings account, your investment in the stock market. That's not what defines prosperity. Prosperity, according to this verse, is having enough of God's supply to accomplish all of God's instructions. In other words, that you can abound to every good work. In other words, if you... It doesn't matter if you live in a mansion. It doesn't matter if you drive nice cars. If you've got all of this money tied up in businesses and things like this, if you can't give to a good work, say, for instance, your church has a building program and you want to give, but all of your money is tied up, you aren't prosperous. You know what? Prosperity is not defined by how much you have, but rather it's by how much you give. A person that abounds to every good work, that's the purpose that God has in giving us money is so that he can establish his covenant. If we will seek first the kingdom of God and use our money first and foremost for his kingdom, then God will supernaturally supply these other things to us. It says here that you are supposed to have all grace abounding towards you so that you can abound unto every good work. If you aren't able to bless every ministry that's blessing you. And if you want to participate and be a part of taking the gospel around the world and helping people start new works and new missions and things like this, and if you have a desire to do it and can't do it, then you aren't prosperous. Not prosperous according to God's standard. God's standard of prosperity is when you are able to give and bless other people. See, if you understand this properly, then prosperity shouldn't be offensive to people because it's not selfish. It's it's giving to other people. Now again, as you give to other people, I'm not saying that you won't have your needs met. As a matter of fact, I'm saying you will have them met better when you put first the kingdom of God than you have other ways. You know, there's a friend of mine who lives in a very nice house. I couldn't tell you exactly how much it... I haven't even been to his house in the last few years. I don't know... The latest house that he's got, he's upgraded a number of times. But the last house I was in, it was about a $600,000 house. 
that he lived in. This is a minister. And he drove cars like Corvettes. I mean, fancy Corvettes, the ones with two engines, two two ignitions, you know, to where you, if you want to really go fast, you turn on the second ignition. And some people criticize him and talk about how he's misusing this and how preachers are doing all of this. But see, God doesn't look at it that way. This man gives away, and I don't even know now, but I mean, years ago, 10 years ago, he was giving away between thirty and $40,000 per month to missions and ministries. He's the one that bought me some of these cars. He's done this for a lot of people. He gave away anywhere from thirty to $40,000 per month. Now, when you look at it that way, the house he lived in was only about one year's worth of his giving. See, God works off of percentages. That's why he told us to give 10%. He didn't tell us all to give a 1000 or or $100,000 or whatever. He told us to give a percent. God looks at percentages. He looks at how much you have left over when you give. Not how much you give, but how much you have left. The percentages. So percentage-wise, this man was giving money that made it so his house was only about one year's worth of his giving. Now, how many of you would like to live in a house that equaled one year's worth of your giving to the kingdom? I can guarantee you that 99.9% of all people listening to this tape or CD would say, no way. If you lived in a place that equaled one year's worth of your giving, most people would be living out on the street or living in a shack or living in their car. No, most people would say, I couldn't do that. Well, see, God looks at this, and this man living in a $600,000 house, is he's living frugally according to God's standard because God looks at how much you have left. He looks at percentages. And so that's not opulent. God's taking care of him. You know, this Corvette that this man drove, it was given unto him. I was there when a truck drove up, backed up, let this car out, and not only gave him the Corvette, but gave him a year's worth of insurance. Do you know that the insurance on a fancy car like that was over $6,000 a year? It was given to him. Now, some people would say, well, a preacher shouldn't have that. Well, what's he going to do? Turn that down and go out and spend his own money to buy something and be worse off financially so that he will look humble in the sight of people. That's just religious. That is hypocritical. That's stupid. It was given to him. Man, I pray that you're understanding what I'm saying. I'm saying that when you put first the kingdom of God, when you start giving, then God will take care of you supernaturally. It goes on to say here in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. Notice it says, God gives seed to the sowers. This isn't talking about just physical seed. This is using money. It's using an illustration here to illustrate money. If you read this, Second Corinthians chapter eight, verses nine and uh, chapters nine and ten is all talking about money. And it's saying God will give money to people who are givers. If you are short of money, it's because you haven't sought first 
the kingdom of God with your finances. You aren't living to give, but you are giving so that you can live. The emphasis is on meeting your need. When you begin to start putting God's kingdom first, there is a supernatural divine flow that takes place to where God meets your needs. Man, that is awesome. And let me say this, that, you know, I've said these things about just giving in general. But there is a difference between giving what I call impulse giving or emotional giving. There's a difference between that type of giving and a systematic, deliberate type of giving that I'm calling partnership to where you literally become united with a church or with a ministry, something that is doing the work of the Lord, and you give on a consistent, deliberate basis. The Apostle Paul encouraged this in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. It says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given uh, order unto the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. In other words, he's saying that he instructed all of the churches, plural, of Galatia. There was a number of churches there, Laodicea, Ephesus, Uh, a number of different churches, and he says, so I'm instructing you, the Corinthians. So this is something that he taught not only to one group of people, but this is at least four or five, probably. He taught this to all of the churches that he started. But he says in verse 2, upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. And he's talking about money here. He says that on the first day of the week, this is Sunday, you should set by and systematically set aside a portion of what you've been prospered with that week. You know, there's a number of reasons for this. For one thing, just practical things, you will wind up giving much more money to the kingdom of God if you do it on a consistent basis every week, or you could say every paycheck, every time you receive income. If you would take the very first part, the very first things that you get, and dedicate that to God, you will wind up giving much more than if you just give whenever you think about it and whenever somebody hits your emotional button and whenever somebody moves you emotionally or whatever, that kind of impulse giving, for one thing, it's not going to be as abundant as a person who plans out and gives deliberately. And it's important. You know, I've already used those scriptures over in Second Corinthians chapter 9, but up just a couple of verses in verse 6, um, Paul said, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. You know, every person wants to have an abundant blessing from God, and they want to receive great finances so that they can have an abundance. And yet, you don't get an abundant return unless you have given abundantly. So it's important that you give as much as you possibly can and put first the kingdom of God. You are going to wind up giving more if you will give on a systematic basis week by week. But not only that, it means that when you start planning your giving, when you give like this, it's deliberate giving. There is more faith involved. There's more focus on your part. And there is also a greater benefit to you spiritually than that person who just gives every once in a while however they feel at the moment. You need to deliberately pursue the things of God. 
Paul talked about in the book of Philippians about people who had, or excuse me, this is in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that the people there entreated him. They begged him to let them give unto him and become a part of this gift that was going to the poor saints that were in Jerusalem. People pursued him. People were begging the preacher to please take my money. That's not an attitude that you see very often, but that's what Paul said. See, these are people that gave on purpose. These are people, the Corinthians, the ones that he had instructed, he says, to lay by in store. They had followed his instructions so much so that they literally begged him to please let us be a part of this. You know, people who get upset when you talk about finances and they just take offense and immediately think that all preachers are after is your money. They don't understand the principles of giving. But man, when you understand this, it is a tremendous opportunity. It is such a blessing to take your resources and use it for the kingdom of God that when you do that, I tell you, it just, it's awesome. People will pursue the opportunity. There's people that will never be late to a church service because they don't want to miss the offering. They don't want to miss this opportunity. That ought to be the attitude that all of us have. So there's a difference between just impulse giving, emotional giving, and a deliberate partnership where you give on purpose and on a consistent, steady basis. And that's what I'm talking about on this tape is about the power of deliberate giving, the power of partnership giving, where you give consistently, systematically, it's on purpose. And when you do that, Man, there are blessings that are out of this world. Let me turn over to the book of Philippians. And this entire book of Philippians, the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian uh, Christians, it was written to partners. Now, some people don't see that, but in Philippians chapter 1, in verse 2, Paul said, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. You know, Ministers don't thank God every time they remember some people. Now, I'm just telling it like it is. There are some people that you say, oh, God, I'm glad I'm out of there. I pray you never send me back. But then there's other people that you remember because they were such a blessing. They received the word of God so well. Paul is saying he thanked God every time he thought of these people. And I'll get to some of these scriptures over in the fourth chapter of Philippians just as quick as I can get there. But it's because these people were partners. They gave to him not only once, not only while he was in Philippi, but even after he left Philippi, they pursued him. And they gave finances, food, and clothing to the necessities of Paul and his team. This is one of the big reasons that Paul thanked God for these people. And in the next verse, he says, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. This word fellowship, the Greek word that was used here is the Greek word koinonia, and it literally means partnership. That is specifically what this word means. Here is the Greek definition from the Strong's Concordance. It means partnership. That is literally participation or social intercourse or financial benefaction. It was translated to communicate, commune, distribution. And in that instance, the word distribution was definitely talking about money. The distribution to the saints is the word that was used. 
And so anyway, this is talking about financial partnership. And so here's Paul saying, I am thanking God every time I think of you, I make requests for you for your partnership, fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul was writing this letter to people who were partners of his. Look at some other things he said over here in Philippians chapter 4. In verse 10, it says, this is Philippians 4.10, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. He's talking here about money. They sent clothing and different things. They ministered to him financially, physically. And he says, I am rejoicing that you have ministered to me once again. He says, you had the desire before, but you lacked an opportunity. You've got to remember that these people didn't have telephones. They didn't have the mail system that we have. They didn't have email. Communication was a major problem. Paul had been in prison for two years, and then he had been in transit to Rome and was shipwrecked in transit. It probably took him a year to get there. So for about three years, Paul had been out of pocket out of a position where they didn't know where he was, they didn't know what was going on, but they pursued him. They had heard that he was headed to Rome, and eventually somebody finally gave them word that he was a prisoner in Rome, and they finally sent more uh, clothes and finances and things that would minister to his necessities to him, and he says that you wanted to do it, but you just didn't have the opportunity. But these people pursued him. In verse 11, He says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. In other words, he's saying the reason he's rejoicing over this isn't because his needs were men. He's learned to be content regardless. But he's excited that these people were showing their love and that they were thinking about him. In verse 12, he says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but you only." Once again, he's talking here about how that the Philippians ministered unto him. And so he's saying here that no church was giving unto me except you. And he says in verse 16, For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. In other words, the reason he was excited about them giving unto him wasn't just because it was meeting his needs, but because he knew it was going to bless them. See, again, here is the benefits of partnership. These people were giving and helping Paul, but it wasn't just something that benefited the recipient. It benefited the giver. The giver gets more blessed. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Paul knew this, and he says, the reason I'm really rejoicing isn't because of the gift I receive, but because I know this is going to be fruit that will abound to your account. And then he goes on down in verse 19, he says, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. 
This verse is often taken out of context and used to say that God is going to supply all of your need. And it's spoken to people who may not be giving at all, or they may just be impulse giving or whatever, but not people who are deliberate, consistent givers, not people who are in partnership with the gospel at all. You know, that's not a correct application of this verse. Now, there are other scriptures it talks about. I've already quoted Third John chapter 1, verse 2, that says, Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospers. So, yes, God does want to supply the needs of every person. God makes his son to rise on the just and on the unjust. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. There are other scriptures and truths in the word of God that you can use to say that God wants to meet the needs of people. But Philippians 4.19, that says confidently, my God will supply all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus, is not written to the Joe Blow Christian, to the average person. It's written to Paul's partners. It's written to people who were giving on a systematic, deliberate basis, who were pursuing God, who were givers and not takers. If you remember that verse over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, says God gives seed to sowers and bread to the eaters. God gives you finances. But when a person is an eater and they take all of the money that comes towards them and they use it to supply their needs and only if there's a crumb left over do they give it to God, that kind of person is not going to ever enter into the real abundance, into this divine supernatural flow. It's when a person becomes a sower that you begin to start seeing supernatural financial blessing in your life. There are people who are eaters and people who are sowers. There are people who are takers, people who are givers. There are some people that all they ever pray about is getting their needs met. They don't think about other people. You know, here's a radical concept. I've challenged my students on this before. And again, this is one of those things that the Holy Ghost has to quicken to you, has to give you a revelation, or you will just think this is, you know, from some other planet. But if you are in need, if you have need of a brand new suit of clothes or a purse or shoes or a car or whatever it is that you need, instead of praying to get your need met, why don't you pray, God, help me to help someone else get their need met? Why don't you go out and buy somebody else a suit and sew that towards you having a suit? Why don't you buy somebody else a pair of shoes and sow that towards you getting the pair of shoes that you desire. Why don't you go out and buy somebody else a car, and then you will get that sewn towards your car. I know that some people are thinking, you can't live that way. Well, then don't wake me up, because that's the way I'm living. I've given away, I couldn't even tell you how many cars. I'm sure there's six or a dozen. I don't even know. I've never just sat down and counted them up, but I've given away bunches of cars. When I started out, you know, you, you don't give what you don't have. I gave away some cars that were dogs, but they were better than what the people that I gave them to had. It was a blessing to them, and I've eventually given away brand new cars. I've brought bought a number of brand new cars and given them away to other people. I didn't do that so that I could get something. I did it because I really want to live to give. I saw other people that had needs, and I wanted to bless them. But, you know, because I have done that, uh, I had 
I think it was 14 years in a row I had other people buy my cars for me. Now, right now, I don't have anybody that's buying my cars. I've bought my own cars. But I'm saying for 14 years in a row, I went out and picked whatever I wanted and somebody else bought it for me. That's pretty good. And you know what? I've given cars away and I reaped them in return. I'm in a situation right now where at the time I'm making this tape, uh, the Lord has just shown me so much that I need to do and I need to go to the next level financially. And I'm believing God for 10,000 new monthly partners, people who will give a dollar per day, an average of $30 per month. That's a $300,000 per month increase in my income. And you know what I'm doing? I was at a meeting where a minister was talking about how they were believing God to go on PAX TV that would open up, I forgot how many millions of new households, secular station, and um, it was going to cost them $900,000 just to buy the transponder, or I may not remember all the terminology, but anyway, it's $900,000, just the initial investment, and so they were asking for people to join with them. Well, I'm believing to go on new TV and to do things, and so as a result, the Lord just quickened to me, that I need to become a partner on a deliberate, consistent basis. And I made a decision, and we've now started sowing $3,000 per month from our ministry into this other minister's ministry so that I can start sowing towards my increase. If I get a hundredfold return on that $3,000 per month, that'll be $300,000 per month coming back to me, which is what I need for this next immediate step to go on with what God's telling me. This is how the kingdom works. I'm putting first the kingdom of God. I could use that $36,000 over a year for my own needs, but you know what? I need to sow so that I can reap. And this is how the kingdom of God works. Paul says, my God will supply all of your need, but he was talking to partners, people who had pursued him, who had given not just when he was there at their place holding a meeting, but when he left, they gave at least two other times, and then this third time in Rome, and it wasn't convenient giving. They had to go to great effort to locate him, to find out where he was, to send a person all the way to Rome. They couldn't wire the money They had to send a person. It was at great expense, great effort, deliberate, intentional giving, not emotional uh, response. Man, they were giving. And because of those people's attitude, because they were sowers and not eaters, God was going to supply all of their needs. When you get to where you are living to give and you put first the kingdom of God, then there is a supernatural divine flow that takes place in your life where your needs will be met. And this is what partnership will bring a person into. You need to recognize that that's what God is trying to accomplish in your life. It's not taking from you, but instead it's giving to you. Look at this example over in 1 Kings chapter 17. This is a story of Elijah and the woman who is at the city of Zarephath, a widow woman, and uh, in verse 8, 1 Kings 17, 8, it says, The word of the Lord came unto him, Elijah, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee. 
So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and said, Fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now, I wish I had more time to develop this. I just need to move along. But Jesus spoke about this in Luke chapter 4, and he says there were many many widows in the nation of Israel during the time of Elijah the prophet, but God didn't send Elijah to any of the Israelite widows. Instead, he sent Elijah to Zidon, to Zarephath, and uh, ministered to that woman. In other words, the Lord is saying this was a specific woman. There was a reason this woman was chosen. And again, if I had more time, I believe I could develop this better. But I believe you can see right here when Elijah came to her and asked for a drink of water, this woman just went to get him some water. Now, we find out later in this story that this was literally, in her mind, uh, in the natural, it was her last day to be alive. She had just enough oil and meal to make one little cake of food, and then she was going to eat it, and her and her son were going to eat it and die. And yet here is this woman in a desperate situation, who when somebody asked a cup of water from her, she gave it. She was going to go get it. She didn't complain. She didn't say a thing. You know, there's a lot of people listening to this teaching right now that with all of your abundance and the fact that you're fed and well-fed and you aren't facing starvation, if somebody came up and asked you for a drink of water, you wouldn't get it for them. You'd say, who died and made you God? You just aren't a giving person like that. And if you were in a desperate situation where it was your last day and it looked like you were going to die and there was no social net, no no security net where somebody could go, you could go to a soup kitchen, the government would feed you and take care of you, welfare. I mean, you were just going to die. If you were in that situation and somebody asked you for a drink of water, what would you do? The point I'm trying to make is this woman was a giver. And you can see it. And I believe that that's the reason that God sent Elijah to her. God didn't send Elijah to this woman to take from her, but rather to give to her. This was the only way this woman was going to survive the drought. If she didn't have a miracle, her and her son were going to die. Elijah was sent to this woman to supply her with a miracle. So she was willing to give this cup of water, but as she was going to get the water, Elijah said unto her, this is in verse 11, bring me, I pray thee, a morsel of bread in thine hand. And the woman said, As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake but a handful of meal in a barrel and a little oil in a cruise. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said unto her, Fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first and bring it unto me and after make for thee and for thy son. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, The barrel of meal shall not waste Neither shall the cruise of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. And she went and did, according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. And the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Elijah. You know, this prophet found out that this woman was down to her last little bit of food, and he said, give it to me. Put the kingdom first. Give to God first. You know, if there would have been newspapers in those days, I can just imagine the Jerusalem Post saying, 
preacher takes widow's last bit of food expected to starve to death because of a preacher who fleeced the people, etc., something like that. But see, Elijah wasn't taking from this woman. He was trying to give to her. You have to get this supernatural flow going that only happens for givers. you got to be a sower and not an eater. Elijah was trying to get this woman to take a step of faith. And by the grace of God, she did. And God supernaturally ministered to her. And every day, not only this first day, but every day. She didn't get, you know, 50 barrels of oil instantly multiplied and 50 barrels of meal. But instead, she had just a tiny bit that she always had. And every morning when she got up, she still had just enough for one day. And every day, I believe, she had to make that cake for Elijah first. And then... there would be enough left for her and her son. Every day she had to trust God. And here's a great truth. Not only did the Lord multiply the meal and the oil so that she and her son and Elijah were able to live off of that for years until the rain came, but it also ministered to her spiritually, just like I was trying to say at the beginning of this teaching, that there is a dynamic that's set, that's set in place so that not only financially are you blessed when you give, but it ministers and strengthens and increases your faith. And because of this, later on, this woman's son died. And she went to Elijah and made a demand on him, and she was bold to reach out and believe God for her son to be raised from the dead. Now think about this. At this time, in the Word of God, there had never been a person raised from the dead. There had not been prophecies about raising people from the dead. There was no promise of this. There was no scriptural precedent. In other words, this was was amazing that anybody would believe for this child to be raised from the dead. Elijah lived in the same house with his family. He knew that the son was dead, and yet Elijah didn't just voluntarily go in and raise the son from the dead. It was at the mother's request. She reached out and made a demand by faith on Elijah. Where did she get such strong faith? Well, part of it was that every day for years she had been taking her last little bit of food and putting first the kingdom of God. And because of that, it not only ministered to her financially, physically, but it ministered to her spiritually, and she had become strong in the Lord because daily she was trusting God. That is so powerful. That is powerful. This is some of the benefits, the power that is in partnership. She had become a part of Elijah's ministry, and because of it, God was supplying all of her need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I won't take time, but if you turned over to 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll find Elisha, Elijah's successor, who did a similar type of thing. And there was a Shunammite woman who built a little house on top of her house. She had an addition to her house just so the prophet would have a place to stay when he came to that area. And because of that, uh, Elisha prayed for her, and she was able to have children, which she had been barren before. And then when the child was grown, the child died. And this woman came and made a demand on Elisha. And Elisha went in and raised her son from the dead. These are the first two people in Scripture that have ever been raised from the dead. And in both cases, it was it, they were women who were partners with a uh, prophet. 
they not only gave occasionally just impulse giving, but they went out of their way to literally sustain the prophet, and they received great miracles from God. Some people will think that's coincidence, but you know what? It's a divine law that when you are partners, then God supplies all of your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Man, that is powerful. That's the power of partnership. Over here in 1 Samuel chapter 30, there's an instance that kind of illustrates what I think partnership is. And David and 600 of his men, this is before he actually became king. He was still living in exile. He was living in a city called Ziklag. And while he and his men were gone, the Amalekites came in and destroyed his city. They burned it with fire. And then they took all of the women and children and all the cattle and everything as captives, and they escaped. Well, David came back, and he and his men pursued after the Amalekites, but 200 of David's men were so tired that they couldn't uh, cross over this brook, uh, Besor. And so it says in verse 9, this First Samuel 39, So David went, he and the 600 men that were with him, and came to the brook Besor, where those that were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and 400 men, for 200 abode behind, which were so faint that they could not go over the brook Bezor. And so the story is that David and these 400 men recovered all of the uh, women and children. They got back all of their spoil, plus they spoiled the Amalekites. It was a great victory. And when they came back to the 200 men that had stayed by the stuff, it says in verse 21, And David came to the 200 men, which were so faint they could not follow David, whom they had made also to abide at the brook Besor. And they went forth to meet David and to meet the people that were come with him. And when David came near to the people, he saluted them. Then answered all of the wicked men and men of Belial, of those that went with David, and said, Because they went not with us, we will not give them aught of the spoil which we have recovered, save to every man his wife and his children, and that they may lead them away and depart. Then said David, You shall not do so, my brethren, with that which the Lord hath given us, who hath preserved us and delivered the company that came against us into our hand. For who will hearken unto you in this matter? But as his part is that goeth down to the battle, so shall his part be that tarrieth by the stuff. They shall part alike. And it was so from that day forward that he made it a statute and an ordinance for Israel unto this day. He set a precedent that this is the way that all military campaigns operated, that the people who were in the support groups and stayed behind with the stuff and took care of the logistical details, they shared equally in the spoil with the people who actually went and fought the battles. And you know what? This is an illustration of how partnership works. It says over in Romans chapter 10 and in verse... Uh, 14, it says, How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And then it goes on to say in verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But notice it says, How can they preach except they be sent? It takes money to preach the gospel. 
And when you become involved in partnership, systematic, deliberately, not just every once in a while letting a seed accidentally fall out of your hand into the ground, but you deliberately, like a farmer, plow the ground, plant it systematically apart. You weed, you take care of it. You're going to get a harvest that way that you won't get if a seed just every once in a while falls here and there. When you become a partner, then... You are sending people. And this is the way that it works. And according to this illustration that David gave us, those who send get equal reward with those who actually go. You know, I'm on radio and television. I travel. I put out tapes, books, videos, do all of these things. But I couldn't do any of that if it wasn't for my partners. I may be the one in front of the camera, in front of the microphone. And some people think, well, boy, you're going to have rewards and God's going to bless you. But my partners are going to reap an equal reward in everything that I do. Now, that is a powerful truth. That's the power of partnership. Not everybody can go, but everybody can send. There's not a person listening to this teaching that can't send and be a part of sending the gospel. And you will reap equal rewards with those who are actually out there doing that work. That's the power of partnership. Partnership not only supplies the needs of the ministry, that's actually one of the smaller benefits of it, but it ministers to you. It puts a supernatural, miraculous, divine flow of finances towards you to where you will live better accidentally than you ever have on purpose before. And it also establishes spiritual dynamics. Your faith will grow and increase. It'll become stronger. You'll be able to believe for things. If you can do that which is least, then you will be able to do that which is greater. And you know what? When you do that, God is going to supernaturally supply all of your needs. You know, this teaching will go out to many different people. Not every person who hears this will be a partner with us. But you know what, I just want to pray specifically with those who are partners with Andrew Womack Ministries because we are taking the gospel to people literally around the world. Our television programs are heard around the world. We're putting out millions and millions of tapes and touching people. And I couldn't do that if it wasn't for partners. And I desire that my partners know that this isn't just money that's leaving your life when you give, but it's money that enters into your future where it grows and multiplies. People's lives are being changed. You're turning carnal things as money into spiritual things, eternal, changed lives. People are going to greet you in heaven and thank you for what you've done to touch their life. And I just pray that you get the full benefit of this partnership. Father, I pray for my partners right now. And I believe that these things I've shared on this teaching are true because they're in your word. First of all, I pray for people who may have given, but they weren't giving on purpose. They weren't giving with this understanding. I pray that the things I've shared on this teaching will explode in their heart and that they will begin to realize and give deliberately, on purpose, mixing it with faith, knowing that we are equal partners. Father, I pray that that truth will explode in their life, that they will take every victory that we have in this ministry as their own victory, that they will look forward to and anticipate the day when they get to meet the millions of people who they have touched 
through this ministry, that they will recognize that's going to be part of their inheritance. Father, I pray that you make that alive on the inside of them, that they grow spiritually, that this gives them encouragement, a sense of worth and value and accomplishment that they are using their resources to advance the kingdom. Father, I pray that you make that real on the inside of them. And I also believe, Father, that as they give, you are going to supply all of their need because they have become partners. That, Father, they are having their needs supplied supernaturally according to your riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I thank you, Father, that there is supernatural benefit for anybody listening who is not able to abound unto every good work, who would desire to give more but can't give it. They're being hindered. I break those hindrances. I command supernatural blessing and finances to come their way, not just so that they can get their needs supplied. We believe that's going to happen, but, Father, so that they can be a blessing, so that they can sow. Father, I believe you give seed to sowers, and right now we call those finances in unto them. I thank you for promotions, raises, supernatural ideas, inventions, We thank you for blessing them, for giving them materials, goods at a discounted rate that they are going to save money, that they can apply towards the kingdom. Father, we just thank you that however, they are going to be blessed every way they turn, that these blessings are coming upon them and overtaking them. And Father, we thank you. Thank you for the power of partnership in the name of Jesus. Amen.